Section 11 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 11, Chapter 52, Part 3. Prynne, a barrister of Lincoln's Inn, had written an enormous quarto of a thousand pages, which he called Histriomastics. Its professed purpose was to decry stage plays, comedies, interludes, music, dancing. But the author likewise took occasion to declaim against hunting, public festivals, Christmas-keeping, bonfires, and maypoles. His zeal against all these levities, he says, was first moved by observing that plays sold better than the choicest sermons, and that they were frequently printed on finer paper than the Bible itself. Besides, that the players were often papists and desperately wicked, the playhouses, he affirms, are Satan's chapels, the play haunters little better than incarnate devils, and so many steps in a dance, so many paces to hell. The chief crime of Nero he represents to have been his frequenting and acting of plays, and those who nobly conspired his death were principally moved to it, as he affirms, by their indignation at that enormity. The rest of his thousand pages is of a like strain. He had obtained a license from Archbishop Abbott's chaplain, yet he was indicted in the Star Chamber as a libeller. It was thought somewhat hard that general invectives against plays should be interpreted into satires against the king and queen merely because they frequented these amusements, and because the queen sometimes acted a part in pastorals and interludes which were represented at court. The author, it must be owned, had in plainer terms blamed the hierarchy, the ceremonies, the innovations in religious worship, and the new superstitions introduced by Laud, and this, probably together with the obstinacy and petulance of his behavior before the Star Chamber, was the reason why his sentence was so severe. He was condemned to be put from the bar, to stand on the pillory in two places, Westminster and Cheapside, to lose both his ears, one in each place, to pay five thousand pounds fine to the king, and to be imprisoned during life. This same Prynne was a great hero among the Puritans, and it was chiefly with a view of mortifying that sect that, though of an honorable profession, he was condemned by the Star Chamber to so ignominious a punishment. The thorough-paced Puritans were distinguishable by the sourness and austerity of their manners, and by their aversion to all pleasure and society. To inspire them with better humor was certainly, both for their own sake and that of the public, a laudable intention in the court. But whether pillories, fines, and prisons were proper expedients for that purpose may admit of some question. Another expedient which the king tried in order to infuse cheerfulness into the national devotion 
was not much more successful. He renewed his father's edict for allowing sports and recreations on Sunday to such as attended public worship, and he ordered his proclamation for that purpose to be publicly read by the clergy after divine service. Those who were puritanically affected refused obedience and were punished by suspension or deprivation. The differences between the sects were before sufficiently great, nor was it necessary to widen them further by these inventions. Some encouragement and protection which the king and the bishops gave to wakes, church ales, bride ales, and other cheerful festivals of the common people were the objects of like scandal to the Puritans. The music in the churches he affirmed not to be the noise of men, but a bleeding of brute beasts, choristers, bellow the tenor, as it were, oxen, bark a counterpart, as it were, a kennel of dogs, roar out a treble, as it were, a sort of bulls, and grunt out a bass, as it were, a number of hogs. Christmas, as it is kept, is the devil's Christmas, and Prynne employed a great number of pages to persuade men to affect the name of Puritan, as if Christ had been a Puritan, and so he saith in his index. This year Charles made a journey to Scotland, attended by the court, in order to hold a parliament there, and to pass through the ceremony of his coronation. The nobility and gentry of both kingdoms rivaled each other in expressing all duty and respect to the king, and in showing mutual friendship and regard to each other. No one could have suspected, from exterior appearances, that such dreadful scenes were approaching. One chief article of business, for it deserves the name, which the king transacted in this parliament, was besides obtaining some supply to procure authority for ordering the habits of clergymen. The act did not pass without opposition and difficulty. The dreadful surplus was before men's eyes, and they apprehended, with some reason, that under sanction of this law it would soon be introduced among them. Though the king believed that his prerogative entailed him to a power, in general, of directing whatever belonged to the exterior government of the church, this was deemed a matter of too great importance to be ordered without the sanction of a particular statute. Immediately after the king's return to England he heard of Archbishop Abbott's death, and without delay he conferred that dignity on his favorite, Laud, who by this accession of authority was now enabled to maintain ecclesiastical discipline with greater rigor, and to aggravate the general discontent of the nation. Laud obtained the bishopric of London for his friend Juxon, and about a year after the death of Sir Richard Weston, created Earl of Portland, had interest enough to engage the king to make that prelate high treasurer. Juxon was a person of great integrity, mildness, and humanity, and endued with a good understanding, yet did this last promotion give general offence. His birth and character were deemed too obscure for a man to rise to one of the highest offices of the crown, and the clergy, it was thought, were already too much elated by former instances of the king's attachment to them, and needed not this further encouragement to assume dominion over the laity. The Puritans, likewise, were much dissatisfied with Juxon, notwithstanding his eminent virtues, 
because he was a lover of profane field sports and hunting. Ship money was now introduced. The first writs of this kind had been directed to seaport towns only, but ship money was at this time levied on the whole kingdom, and each county was rated at a particular sum, which was afterwards assessed upon individuals. The amount of the whole tax was very moderate, little exceeding two hundred thousand pounds. It was levied upon the people with equality. The money was entirely expended on the navy, to the great honor and advantage of the kingdom. As England had no military force, while all the other powers of Europe were strongly armed, a fleet seemed absolutely necessary for her security, and it was obvious that a navy must be built and equipped at leisure during peace, nor could it possibly be fitted out on a sudden emergence, when the danger became urgent. Yet all these considerations could not reconcile the people to the imposition. It was entirely arbitrary, by the same right any other tax might be imposed, and men thought a powerful fleet, though very desirable both for the credit and safety of the kingdom, but an unequal recompense for their liberties, which they apprehended were thus sacrificed to the obtaining of it. England, it must be owned, was in this respect unhappy in its present situation, that the king had entertained a very different idea of the constitution from that which began in general to prevail among his subjects. He did not regard national privileges as so sacred and inviolable that nothing but the most extreme necessity could justify an infringement of them. He considered himself as a supreme magistrate to whose care heaven, by his birthright, had committed his people, whose duty it was to provide for their security and happiness, and who was vested with ample discretionary powers for that salutary purpose. If the observance of ancient laws and customs was consistent with the present convenience of government, he thought himself obliged to comply with that rule as the easiest, the safest, and what procured the most prompt and willing obedience. But when a change of circumstances, especially if derived from the obstinacy of the people, required a new plan of administration, national privileges, he thought, must yield to supreme power, nor could any order of the state oppose any right to the will of the sovereign directed to the good of the public that these principles of government were derived from the uniform tenor of the English laws, it would be rash to affirm. The fluctuating nature of the Constitution, the impatient humor of the people, and the variety of events had no doubt in different ages produced exceptions and contradictions. These observations alone may be established on both sides that the appearances were sufficiently strong in favor of the king to apologize for his following such maxims, and that public liberty must be so precarious under this exorbitant prerogative as to render an opposition not only excusable but laudable in the people. Some laws had been enacted during the reign of Henry the Seventh against depopulation or the converting of the arable lands into pasture. By a decree of the Star Chamber, Sir Anthony Roper was fined four thousand pounds for an offence of that nature. This severe sentence was intended to terrify others into composition, and above thirty thousand pounds were levied by that expedient. Like compositions, or in default of them heavy fines, 
were required for encroachments on the king's forests, whose bounds, by decrees deemed arbitrary, were extended much beyond what was usual. The bounds of one forest, that of Rockingham, were increased from six miles to sixty. The same refractory humor which made the people refuse to the king voluntary supplies disposed them, with better reason, to murmur against these irregular methods of taxation. Morley was fined ten thousand pounds for reviling, challenging, and striking in the court of Whitehall Sir George Theobald, one of the king's servants. This fine was thought exorbitant, but whether it was compounded, as was usual in fines imposed by the Star Chamber, we are not informed. Allison had reported that the Archbishop of York had incurred the king's displeasure by asking a limited toleration for the Catholics and an allowance to build some churches for the exercise of their religion. For this slander against the archbishop he was condemned in the star chamber to be fined one thousand pounds, to be committed to prison, and be bound to his good behavior during life, to be whipped, and to be set on the pillory at Westminster, and in three other towns in England. Robbins, who had been an accomplice in the guilt, was condemned by a sentence equally severe such events are rather to be considered as rare and detached incidents collected by the severe scrutiny of historians than proofs of the prevailing genius of the king's administration which seems to have been more gentle and equitable than that of most of his predecessors there were on the whole only five or six such instances of rigor during the course of fifteen years which elapsed before the meeting of the long parliament and it is also certain that scandal against the great though seldom prosecuted at present is however in the eye of the law a great crime and subjects the offender to very heavy penalties there are other instances of the high respect paid to the nobility and to the great in that age when the powers of monarchy though disputed still maintained themselves in their pristine vigour clarendon tells us a pleasant incident to this purpose a waterman belonging to a man of quality having a squabble with a citizen about his fare showed his badge the crest of his master which happened to be a swan and thence insisted on better treatment from the citizen but the other replied carelessly that he did not trouble his head about that goose for this offence he was summoned before the marshal's court was fined as having opprobriously defamed the nobleman's crest by calling the swan a goose and was in effect reduced to beggary. Sir Richard Granville had thought himself ill-used by the Earl of Suffolk in a lawsuit, and he was accused before the Star Chamber of having said of that nobleman that he was a base lord. The evidence against him was somewhat lame, yet for this slight offence, insufficiently proved, he was condemned to pay a fine of eight thousand pounds, one half to the Earl, the other to the King sir george markham following a chase where lord darcy's huntsman was exercising his hounds kept closer to the dogs than was thought proper by the huntsman who besides other rudeness gave him foul language which sir george returned with a stroke of his whip the fellow threatened to complain to his master the knight replied if his master should justify such insolence he would serve him in the same manner or words to that effect Sir George was summoned before the Star Chamber and fined ten thousand pounds. Quote, so fine a thing it was in those days to be a lord. End quote. 
a natural reflection of Lord Lansdowne's in relating this incident, the people, in vindicating their liberties from the authority of the crown, threw off also the yoke of the nobility. It is proper to remark that this last incident happened early in the reign of James. The present practice of the Star Chamber was far from being an innovation, though the present dispositions of the people made them repine more at this servitude. Charles had imitated the example of Elizabeth and James, and had issued proclamations forbidding the landed gentlemen and the nobility to live idly in London, and ordering them to retire to their country seats. For disobedience to this edict, many were indicted by the Attorney General, and were fined in the Star Chamber. This occasioned discontents, and the sentences were complained of as illegal. But if proclamations had authority, of which nobody pretended to doubt, must they not be put in execution? In no instance, I must confess, does it more evidently appear what confused and uncertain ideas were during that age entertained concerning the English Constitution. Ray, having exported Fuller's earth, contrary to the King's proclamation, was, besides the pillory, condemned in the Star Chamber to a fine of two thousand pounds. Like fines were levied on Terry, Emmon, and others for disobeying a proclamation which forbade the exportation of gold. In order to account for the subsequent convulsions, even these incidents are not to be overlooked as frivolous or contemptible. Such severities were afterwards magnified into the greatest enormities. There remains a proclamation of this year prohibiting hackney coaches from standing in the street. We are told that there were not above twenty coaches of that kind in London. There are at present near eight hundred. The effects of ship money began now to appear. A formidable fleet of sixty sail, the greatest that England had ever known, was equipped under the Earl of Northumberland, who had orders to attack the herring-busses of the Dutch, which fished in what were called the British Seas. The Dutch were content to pay thirty thousand pounds for a license during this year. They openly denied, however, the claim of dominion in the seas beyond the friths, bays, and shores, and it may be questioned whether the laws of nations warrant any further pretensions. This year the king sent a squadron against Salih, and, with the assistance of the Emperor of Morocco, destroyed that receptacle of pirates, by whom the English commerce and even the English coast had long been infested. Burton, a divine, and Bastwick, a physician, were tried in the Star Chamber for seditious and schismatical libels, and were condemned to the same punishment that had been inflicted on Prynne. Prynne himself was tried for a new offence, and together with another fine of five thousand pounds, was condemned to lose what remained of his ears. Besides that, these writers had attacked with great severity, and even in impemperant zeal, the ceremonies, rites, and government of the church. The very answers which they gave in to the court were so full of contumacy and of invectives against the prelates, that no lawyer could be prevailed on to sign them. The rigors, however, which they underwent, being so unworthy men of their profession, gave general offence and the patience, or rather alacrity, with which they suffered, increased still further the indignation of the public. The severity of the Star Chamber, which was generally ascribed to Laud's passionate disposition, 
was perhaps in itself somewhat blamable, but will naturally to us appear enormous, who enjoy, in the utmost latitude, that liberty of the press, which is esteemed so necessary in every monarchy confined by strict legal limitations. But as these limitations were not regularly fixed during the age of Charles, nor at any time before, so was this liberty totally unknown, and was generally deemed, as well as religious toleration, incompatible with all good government. No age or nation among the moderns has ever set an example of such an indulgence, and it seems unreasonable to judge of the measures embraced during one period by the maxims which prevail in another. Burton, in his book where he complained of innovations, mentioned, among others, that a certain Wednesday had been appointed for a feast, and that the fast was ordered to be celebrated without any sermons. The intention, as he pretended, of that novelty was, by the example of a fast without sermons, to suppress all the Wednesday's lectures in London. It is observable that the Church of Rome and that of England, being both of them lovers of form and ceremony and order, are more friends to prayer than preaching, while the Puritanical sectaries, who find that the latter method of address, being directed to a numerous audience present and visible, is more inflaming and animating, have always regarded it as the chief part of divine service. Such circumstances, though minute, it may not be improper to transmit to posterity, and those who are curious of tracing the history of the human mind may remark how far its several singularities coincide in different ages. End of section 11. Chapter 52. Part 3. Recording by Kevin Davidson. www.blogordie.com.